Um, we're starting a new series today called uh, He Gets It. Uh, you're going to hear me say He Gets It a lot. Um, this is actually a pretty big theological thing. Um, for a long time, uh, the church thought that uh, God um, doesn't, doesn't have feelings. This was something that's... Uh, that was was really big in the early church, that God was like this uh, sort of above and beyond everything. And in fact, there's a lot of Christians who, to this day, believe this. They believe that God's kind of like, uh, I don't know, just really stern and just the same all the time. Uh, and, and, and that would be possible to believe if we did not have the witness of the Gospels. And it would be possible to believe if we didn't have uh, the witness of the Passion narrative in four different Gospels. Because what we're going to see... Uh, over the next few weeks as we kind of get ready for Easter and prepare to celebrate the resurrection, is that um, that God in Christ and in the incarnation has um, taken on, subsumed, brought into God's own being what it is to suffer. And suffer in every single way that we as people suffer. Uh, we have a theme verse uh, for this this um, this series. It's from Hebrews. It says, "For we do not have a high priest, and 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 we're talking about uh, Jesus, Jesus, a high priest who is unable to emp- emp- empathize with our weaknesses. He's not he's not far off. He's not above it all. In fact, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. And so um, we're gonna." Jump into the text, let that settle. And what I think is going to happen, what I'm really excited most about, is as we start to understand God as, as you know, the crucified God, the suffering God, the God who has taken all of our experiences, we're going to start to see how that's going to change our prayer life. And it's, we're going to start to see how that changes how we listen to God. So uh, this is a thing for me. I, it, some of you know I teach uh, theology classes. My goal in teaching a theology class is to make sure that, that we don't just stay abstract, right? It should have, uh, what we believe should have a direct impact on what we do and how we live. And this series is going to directly impact our prayer life and our listening life. So let's jump in uh, to the text. This is Mark fourteen forty three to 52. We're kind of jumping in the middle. We may uh, go back and, and, and talk about the, the, the Last Supper. We'll see. Uh, but, but we're going to start here. We're going to jump in the middle with Jesus' arrest. This is uh, Mark fourteen forty three. Suddenly, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came with a mob carrying swords and clubs. They had been sent by the chief priests, legal experts, and elders. His betrayer had given them a sign. Arrest the man I kiss and take him away under guard. As soon as he got there, Jesus said to Jesus, Rabbi. Then he kissed him. And then they came and grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of the bystanders drew a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Jesus responded, uh, not to that, but to his arrest. Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like an outlaw, like a robber? Day after day, I was with you. Jesus was in the temple, right? I was with you teaching in the temple, but you didn't arrest me there. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all his disciples left him and ran away. One young man, a disciple, was wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They grabbed him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Uh, Just to to set the scene here, uh, while he was still speaking, 
Um, if you're not familiar with the Passion narrative, what's just happened is that Jesus celebrated uh, the Last Supper, a Passover meal with his disciples. He tells them that Judas is going to betray him. And then he, he goes off to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He brings along uh, Peter, James, and John, some of his closest best buddies. And uh, while he's there, what happens is he um, goes off a little ways away from them and really begins to emote. Um, we, we may go back and talk about this, but it says that he's filled with despair and anxiety. He feels like he's dying. Uh, if any of you remember, I think it came out in the 90s, that movie uh, Dead Man Walking with uh, Susan Sarandon and uh, Sean Penn. It's a story of a, of a convict who is on death row. And uh, it, there's this nun who kind of thinks that he's innocent, that he shouldn't be on death row. And she, she starts a correspondence with him, and then she visits him. And it actually gets really intense. It, it, the, the story goes all the way up to the day before he's going to be executed. And he's just rocking back and forth. He's, he's bawling and crying and screaming. And he's, he's, I'm scared to die. And then in the middle of it, he, he confesses to her. He says, he says I, just racked with guilt and pain. He's like, you don't understand. I did it. I'm a murderer and I'm a rapist. And I deserve to die, but I am so scared. And then uh, the next day, uh, as he's getting ready for lethal injection, he sees uh, the family of the, the person that he uh, had violated and killed. And he says, listen, I did it, and I am sorry. I hope my death gives you peace. And the whole time he's sobbing and just visibly shaking, almost losing control of his bowels. That's the scene for Jesus. Jesus... Um, you know, he, he believes that God has resurrection in mind. He believes that the kingdom will come. But he knows that there's something really horrible that's about to happen. And so he asks his buddies, Peter, James, and John, hey guys, can you pray with me right now? Because I'm really, really scared. My heart is just beating out of my chest and I don't know how to deal with this. And, and, and they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, we'll take care of that. And, then, and they fall asleep. And he comes back and he's like, guys, are you kidding me? And they're like, oh yeah, sorry Jesus, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get right on that. And they fall asleep again. And then a third time. This is uh, from the 16th century, I think. Uh, kind of a, and, and what's going on here, Garden of Gethsemane's scene is that, you know, the, the disciples are off, they're, they're falling asleep. Why? Well, because they don't think anything's going to happen. They think that Jesus is great, he's going to take care of business. He always has before. And so even though he said he's going to die, and even though he says he's going to be arrested, even though he says he's going to be betrayed, that's crazy. Let's just take a nap because it's really late. And then in the morning, we can settle Jesus down and, and get back to business. And so, in the middle of the night, two-ish in the morning, Jesus is abandoned. And his first abandonment is by uh, his friends who leave him to anxiety. And that's the first thing in your note sheets. Jesus' closest friends abandon him to bowel-shaking anxiety. Uh, I'm a huge, I really dislike anxiety. Um, it's something I've shared with you. I, I, I battle. It's part of my life. And I know that there are those of you who are here who have the same situation where it's like part of your life. You don't have this control over that fear sensation. Um, and one of the crazy things about, about anxiety is it's really hard to find people who can relate. You know, especially if it's a disorder, it's, it's hard to find people who are like, oh yeah, I get what that's like, uh, totally. And so there's a feeling of isolation and abandonment when you're in the middle of despair and anxiety. Because you're like, I just wish someone got it. 
And how great, uh, a few times in my life it's happened where I've found somebody who's, who's experienced something similar. And it's crazy. We can talk for hours. We can talk for hours. We can commiserate, be like, can you believe it when this happens? And it's like, oh gosh, it's, it's, it's rough. And then in the middle of it, in the middle of it, uh, an experience of it, I can say, hey, this is happening to me right now. And, and a person, a friend can be like, well, here's what's going to happen. We've been here before. We know what it's like. Well, guess what? Jesus gets it too. Jesus experienced that very same thing, only probably a lot worse, because he was staring down the barrel of torture and death. He gets it. He can relate. Uh, Going back to the text. Suddenly, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, that's important, came with a mob. His betrayer had given them a sign, arrest the man I kiss and take him away under guard. As soon as he got there, Jesus said to Jesus, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Uh, when I was living in Japan, uh, there was an interesting thing that I noticed. When I first got to my job, um, I, I did what I did in America, where when you walk into a room, you just walk into a room. Wrong. In Japan, when you walk into the office, they have an office where all the teachers sit together, and then you like go out to classrooms. And every time you enter the office, you have to say something to everyone to honor them. So some people would say, Oh, gozaimasu! You know, good morning! I found out that one of the things you could say is, I'm sorry. So everything, every time I walked into the office, I was meaning, I apologize. I am useless and hopeless. I am terrible, and I'm distracting you and wasting your time. And they loved it. They thought that was great because they agreed. I was distracting them and wasting their time. And so that they, they, and so my coach sensei, my principal, really, he was like, you're doing great, buddy. I really like where your head's at. Because you know that you're useless. It's an honor-shame culture. Really, the only time most people would do that was if they were late or if they, like, really made, a, like, a racket. But I used it every time because it was fun. And, uh, and the coach sensei, principal, he, um, he thought that was awesome. Well, it, 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 the whole point of it is that, like, in, the, in that culture, there is a way to, it's honor and shame, right? And, and you have to show that you know your place, right? And if you don't, then you're kind of out of sorts, and it's really disrespectful. Especially if, like me, I was an invader barbarian, and, and they were so gracious to have me around, right? If I didn't acknowledge that in, like, these set patterns, then, well, I was just out of line. This is exactly what's happening with Judas, Judas has, every time a disciple in, in the ancient world would see their teacher, their rabbi, they would literally walk up, they would say, rabbi, probably bow, and then give a kiss on the cheek to indicate, I know I'm terrible, you're the one who's in charge, you're the best. So imagine I walk in, I'm like, I am so sorry for being here, and I walked up and slapped the principal in the face. Well, what was the shitsureshimas doing? It was deepening the insult. It was letting him know how much contempt I secretly have for him. Right? Because if, a normal way to insult him would just be to walk in and slap him. But no, I've said, I've said, oh, I apologize. I'm so barbaric and useless. Similarly, um, what Judas is doing is he's, he's going out to Jesus. And it's not like there's any question about what's happening here. Right? And he goes up and he, and he gives Jesus a kiss. And what he's really, and he says, Rabbi bows. And what he's really doing is he's saying, you know what? For a really long time, I have hated you. I never said anything. I kept it to myself. 
But over the time we've been together, I've been growing in bitterness. And I, I, never, I never had the guts to confront you directly. Instead, I just kind of hit it. And I got to a point where I was so mad and so angry at you, probably because Jesus uh, refuses to be a political revolutionary. And that's probably what Judas, uh, Judas wanted him to be. And because Jesus refuses, this, this, this burning hatred begins building up in him to the point that he is willing to make a deal with the, the, the group that's both of their enemies. Judas hates the religious leaders. He wants them overthrown. And yet he'd rather make a deal with them to mess over, to, to mess up Jesus than to live and, and confront and have a deal. Can you imagine Jesus sitting there being like, if you just told me, we could have talked this out. This is, uh, you know, something that's actually really endemic in our culture. Um, this uh, secret hatred. Um, there's a fear of confrontation. There's a fear that, uh, that, that we, we won't, don't want to mess things up, and so we hide our emotions and our feelings. And, and maybe you've experienced it where somewhere along the line you've been with somebody that you thought loved you, that you thought cared about you, someone that was really tight. And then you wake up one day, and then that person plants a shiv in your back. He gets it. I think with kids these days, especially now uh, with social media and um, and the tweeting and the whatnot, it's crazy how how one day you know everybody's friends, and then the way that drama erupts and friendships—it's like Mean Girls, you know, friendships are ruined, destroyed, and you're like, how did that even happen? He gets it. Second thing I know, she's second. Uh, Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, has secretly grown to hate him every day. They were hanging out, and behind the smile was daggers. And when it finally unleashed, go back to the text. One of the bystanders drew a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. We find out in uh, the other uh, gospel, I think Gospel of John, that this is Peter. It's not important to Mark. Mark doesn't care that we uh, find out who did this. What's most important is that it happened. Now, uh, I have a couple of classic, more or less classic images of this. Um, one from the 19th century, one from the 16th century. And in both cases, you know, you, there's this real, like, macho, Peter's a, uh, just a, he's a real warrior kind of look there. I mean, look at that. Like, he's like, and one, he's a super old dude, which probably wasn't the case. But either way, he's like, he's like, yeah. You know, and there's this big fight going on. Everyone's, like, freaking out and punching each other and stuff. And that's kind of maybe how we imagine this scene. But it's really interesting. Do you notice who, who Peter cuts, right? Is it, I don't know, one of the people trying to arrest Jesus? No. It's, uh, it's the high priest slave. This guy's there probably to let Caiaphas know how things went. He's unarmed. He's just standing there. He's on the outside. The, there's actually a mob of people. Really, it's police. Uh, it's police. They're religious police. They're sent by, uh, in, in, at this time, uh, the religious elites ran kind of the local police force. And so they would send out these groups to make arrests. Um, they do it at night and to avoid a riot because there were lots of riots in Jerusalem around this time. And so there are people who are there in uniforms with weapons. Uh, the clubs were used to uh, st- uh, stop riots. They expected some resistance. And they also have swords. Peter sees what's happening. And he could have rushed right into the fray and been like, I'm going to protect you, Jesus, and keep those guys back. No, instead, he's like, that guy looks easy. Like that. And notice that he, what does he do? He cuts off his ear. 
if I ever get around to buying that firearm, and if I ever experience a home invasion, I mean, it'll make a loud noise, but it probably won't do anything. Why? Because I'm terrible at shooting. And so if I'm actually in danger, I'm probably going to freak out and be like... Right? And then, like, the, the, the dust from the ceiling will get in his eyes, and that's how we'll get out. Okay. Take, again, now, now let's just assume for a second that someone decided to invade, I don't know, former, you know, chief of, uh, sheriff, whatever, Lou Gutierrez. Let's say they go into his house. He's going to stop, pause, calmly, un, you know, get out his concealed weapon, take aim, breathing out, pop, pop, down. Okay? Because he has training, because he is a competent user of a weapon, right? Peter is not that guy. Peter's like me. Peter's like, ah! oh, geez, his ear, really? That's where you hit him? The ear? Like, honestly, how hard is it, really? How hard is it just go for the midsection? This isn't, it's not complicated. Why do I bring this up? Well, Mark seems to think it's interesting, and, and, and it is interesting because what's going on is that we're, he's describing Peter as just panicking. He's lost his mind. And in, the, and in losing his mind and in freaking out, what has he done? Has he done anything benefit, benefit, uh, constructive? No. In fact, if he had been listening, earlier that night, Jesus was like, hey, I'm going to get betrayed tonight, and then they're going to crucify me. And then later, he would have heard Jesus being like, dear God, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He would know that this is all coming up. But instead, he's abandoned Jesus' teaching, Jesus' way. He's, aban- he's just lost his mind. So the next thing in your note sheets. Third, one of Jesus' closest friends panics and abandons Jesus' teaching. Teaching is not the best word, but this is very similar to if you've ever spent time pouring into somebody. Um, I imagine that my parents probably felt this way about me. Uh, they spent a lot of time trying to make sure I wasn't terrible. And I imagine they must have felt really abandoned when I disappointed them. Have you spent time, you know, as Christians, we really are supposed to be spending time bringing along people who, who aren't as mature as we are. And that actually becomes really devastating for a lot of people in, in the church because you, you, you do this, you pour in, you pour in, you pour in. And then at the moment when it really matters, when you're hoping your legacy is going to be carried on and they're going to see and do exactly what you've trained them to see and do, at that moment they just toss it all around, they go crazy, and they lose it. And you, you're... There's, a, there's an element of them looking at you and, and just saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing your thing anymore. And that hurts. I know, uh, if, I'm, if I'm being very honest, one of the reasons that it's, it's hard for me to, to kind of drop those walls and, and invest in other people is because I expect to be disappointed. I expect to be abandoned. And, you know, there are those of us who um, have children who've gone off the reservation, they've rebelled. People that we've mentored a lot of times at work, especially if you're, you know, high up at your, at your position and you bring other people along. And then there's that day where they just put the knife in your back and say, I don't need you. He gets it. He gets it. Going back to the text, this is uh, it's fascinating. Uh, so all his disciples left him and ran away. One young man, a disciple, was wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They grabbed him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Really, Mark? It's kind of a strange detail. 
we actually, most scholars think that um, Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source uh, when they're composing their Gospels, one of many. And it's interesting, they follow his narrative here almost precisely, but they delete this part. They leave this part out. They're like, what is this? One young man, a disciple, was wearing nothing but a what? He ran away naked? Uh, it's been a subject of, of a lot of conjecture over the years. Who is this young man? I, I believe that it's, it's Mark himself. I believe that Mark um, is writing this from memory. Uh, he was, we, we know from church history, that he was a young man. We also know he and his family lived in Jerusalem. The uh, church met there um, frequently, and it's, it's recorded in Acts 12.12. 12. We also, since we know that the church met there, we know he was wealthy. And it's uh, the linen cloth there. A uh, linen cloth would have been something that a wealthier person would have worn rather than um, just something more rag-like. He doesn't name himself, and I think what he's doing there, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, John refers to himself as the beloved disciple, but doesn't say it's me. And, and sometimes Paul will say things like, I know a guy who got caught up into the third heaven or something like that. It's him, but he's being, they're trying, they're trying to be humble, and they're trying to make the, the story and the narrative not about them, but about somebody else. And so that's kind of why it's written that way, and it's my, my belief. But that's not the important part. It doesn't matter who it was. Just like with Peter, it doesn't matter it was Peter. It just matters that it happened. And if you're following this, if you pull out a pew Bible, the New King James, uh, you'll see that instead of saying a disciple, it says one young man who was following. That's because um, that's actually not a, a noun in the Greek. It's a verb. It's soon um, akathileo. And, uh, it's, it, and so it, like, if you do a literal wooden translation, it's one young man who was following. But Mark only uses this word, and it's cognates, in one context. He only uses it when he's describing somebody who's following Jesus as a disciple. So, for example, when Jesus calls, like, Matthew, and Matthew says, I'm coming, and, and, and he followed him, indicating he's with him, he's behind him, he's not just, he's not just wandering around. In fact, when uh, the rich young ruler, if you remember this story, uh, the, the rich young ruler is like, is like, what do I got to do? And Jesus says, do this, this, this. Uh, and then the guy runs away, uh, oh, leave everything and follow me. Now that's what you got to do last, same verb. And then, uh, so the rich young, man, uh, rich young ruler is sad and walks away because he has many great things. And then Peter pipes up and says, hey, look at us. We've left everything to follow you, akathuleo. What do we get? What Mark's pointing out here is that this isn't somebody who was just like walking along behind Jesus. Because in the narrative, Jesus hasn't moved. He's standing still. He's being arrested. That's not what's going on. It's describing Mark as somebody who was with Jesus for real, a disciple. And what are disciples in, in, in the Gospel of Mark and in the other Gospels? They're the people who have left everything for Jesus. They've left everything, family, uh, stuff, jobs, everything to follow Jesus. And now they're at a point where these people who've given up everything to follow Jesus are willing to give up everything to get away from Jesus. He left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Uh, the reason this is there is because Mark's pointing out, in, in Jewish people don't run around naked. It's very sinful and very bad to be exposed in public. It's something that's really taboo. And at this moment, in this guy's life, in Mark's life, who was following Jesus so much, he'd rather run around naked. He'd rather lose his expensive clothes. He wants to give up anything he has to to get away from his best friend. 
The disciples give up everything to follow. And then they give up everything to get away. I think uh, in this culture, you know, I, we, we see it now um, a lot, actually, because of, you know, call-out culture and, and whatnot. Like, I mean, you think about uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Think about uh, Harvey Weinstein. You get these people who, um, they have a pro- public profile, right? And then somebody makes an accusation. And, oh, those kids uh, with the uh, Make America Great Again hats, right? Um, someone makes an accusation, and then everybody in the world instantaneously, their best friends and everyone just turn right around and say, I hate you. Often with no evidence or very little. And so you, you imagine being one of these, these people who's sitting there and you know, you're, you're living your life, you have all these people that you think are your friends, you know, they're super close to you, and then someone posts something on you know, Twitter and the Washington Post picks it up, and suddenly these people, your friends, are writing op-eds about how awful you are. And every sordid detail of your life is being you know, put out for everyone to, to recognize. And you have got to be like, I mean, there's people who, um, they, they, they get uh, PTSD from these experiences because it's like this radical shift where what they thought was the world, they thought they had acceptance, they thought they had friendship, they thought they had intimacy, and suddenly, boom, gone. You know, Jesus was celibate, right? Jesus was celibate. And the closest thing he had to family uh, in his travels were his disciples. These were the people that were his life, his livelihood. These are the ones he shared with, who connected with him. These are the ones, and, 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 and here they are, right there, literally running away naked. And looking back and being like, ah, anything but being with you, man. I know some here... Um, have been uh, divorced. I mean, uh, it, 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 it strikes me that something very similar where you have, you know, a spouse, somebody that you think can carry every single one of your secrets, who will always back you to the hilt, who will never, and then suddenly one day you wake up and that person will give up anything to get away from you. I know uh, kids who've been adopted and they grow up, and, and part of growing up for them is, is trying to come to terms with, with a family member, you know, parents that would give, literally give up everything to get away from them. He gets it. God gets it. Somehow, in the mystery of the incarnation, the God of the universe experiences utter and complete abandonment and does so to save the world. How, how do we pray? I mean, everyone here has experienced in some way or another abandonment. And again, I do think that with social media, I think we see it in our kids more and more. I think young people have an absolutely horrible um, circumstance growing up. 
uh, because the way that um, social media can turn on people and people can be excluded, you know, it's not like you just don't have friends at school. You, you have people who hate you 24-7 and it keeps coming through your feed to let you know how useless you are. And how do we pray in the middle of that? How do we pray? Normally we kind of pray like God's like up there. Like, Lord, I'm, uh, I'm really lonely right now. Can you please help? I recommend instead, Lord, you're the only one who knows what this is like. You're the only one who's been there too. And yet you've loved me. Lord, we all abandon you so that you would never abandon us. Everyone can run. Everyone did run. And you did it anyway. And so nobody knows what I need like you need, like you do. Nobody knows what this is like, like you do. And when I say I need to feel loved again, when I say that I need to experience being a part of things, to trust again, to, you know, you get it. And Jesus, I know that you went through it. You suffered the uttermost of abandonment, and yet the power of God, it was redeemed. And that even though Peter ran off, and even though Mark ran off, you came back and you were restored to community. There was hope, there is reality, there is joy in your experience, you didn't stay stuck, abandoned. You came out from abandonment. God, I need that now. Jesus, I need that. And if anyone gets it, you do. We, uh, we, we, we just ignored just one piece of the text. We just kind of skipped over it, glossed it a little bit. I want to focus on it because I think, I think that it, it, this is where I think it gets radical. This is where the passion narrative starts to get crazy. Day after day I was with you. I was out there teaching in the temples. And, and, now, and now you wait till nighttime because you don't want to start a ruckus. You want to just get me out of the way quietly. Fine, fine, fine. We'll do that so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. Interestingly, we know what text uh, Jesus is quoting because he actually quotes it earlier in the chapter. Um, he, he, uh, he quotes it early in the chapter, and it's, it's Zechariah 13.7. And I want to read that. I want to read Zechariah 13.7. This is a messianic text. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, says Yahweh. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus uh, quotes the part that says, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, this is a messianic text. Uh, at the time of Jesus, uh, it was believed that this was referring to the Messiah. Uh, and so the shepherd is the Messiah. The shepherd is Jesus. Awake, O sword, against Jesus. Against the man who is my companion. The Hebrew there for my companion is very interesting. It's, uh, it's, uh, the Hebrew is sort of like, um, it's like the one who is most closely associated with me. The one, the one who's, uh, who's almost, you know, connected to me. Uh, so from a Trinitarian perspective, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting little thing there because it's almost like, you know, God's the one speaking, Yahweh is speaking, and he's saying, strike Jesus, you know, the one who is my companion, who's ultra close to me. But 
whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, wait. Who's, who's doing the striking here? It's the chief priests and their police, right? They sent the cops to come get Jesus, and then the Romans are going to help out, and the Romans and the Jewish elites are going to kill Jesus. That's who's striking him, right? Wrong. Jesus looks back, and he remembers this text. It says, Yahweh is going to strike with a sword the shepherd, the Messiah. It's not Judas doing the betraying. It's not Peter and James and John falling asleep. That's not the real hurt here. The real hurt here is that it is God who is looking down at the Son, at the Messiah, and saying, I have to do this to you. You see, we, uh, we often feel like it's happened in my life where I'm like, God, where are you? I don't feel you, you know? Because feelings are subjective. They, uh, they come, they go. Sometimes I feel very close to God. Sometimes I don't. But the, the fact of the matter is God's still there, right? God doesn't go anywhere. Um, we could not possibly imagine what it would be to have God leave. In fact, many people believe um, that the absence of God is what hell is, right? The uh, damnation, the ultimate experience of privation and horror is simply being separated from God. The idea being that everybody in the world is in some way connected to God. Like God is still in somehow part of their lives. Even if they don't believe and hate him, he's still uh, in some ways protecting them. And still in some ways his spirit is blessing them. Uh, the Methodists call this prevenient grace. Whatever. The, the bottom line is that nobody, nobody in the world has ever experienced what it is to be completely and fully separated from the God of the universe. Except one person. The God of the universe. Jesus recognizes that what's happening right now, somehow, in the mystery of the Trinity, the Father is saying no to the Son. He's saying to the Son, welcome to hell, because that's what it's like when I'm not there. Yeah, Judas abandoned and betrayed you. Yeah, Peter, James, and John abandoned you. Yeah, Mark abandoned you. But that's nothing. And we, we got to do this. Or else we can't save these people. Don't want to be tritheistic there. We is uh, just trying to use human language. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And yet somehow in the mystery of the passion, God says no and abandons the Son and the power of the Spirit. It's the next thing you're no cheese. Out of love for his creation, the Father abandons the Son by the Spirit to death. And when I say death, it should be capital D, death. It should be the ultimate experience of aloneness that you can possibly, that we can't. We can never imagine it. We can't. It's beyond human comprehension. So he gets it, but we don't. Why is that important? So uh, I, I don't know. I've, I've told some of you, um, I actually work on these sermons with uh, my buddy Mike. Mike is a friend from seminary. He uh, pastors a small church in Minnesota. Uh, Mike is, an, he's like, he's great. He's basically the opposite of me. Uh, so people really like him. Uh, he's an awesome dude. And, uh, and one of the many ways in which Mike is different from me, he doesn't tell his own people this, but it's true. He got a bronze star in Iraq. Um, they don't know this. He, uh, he told me in confidence, but I don't think you know him, so I'll let it out there. He's a bronze star. He was a chaplain. Uh, the army helped pay for his seminary. He went to Iraq, and uh, he got a bronze star. And the reason he got a bronze star, because of uh, extraordinary bravery. And 
extraordinary bravery in the middle of combat. He uh, went and, um, and held the hands of two uh, army soldiers who were dying and prayed with them after they'd been uh, blown up by a rocket. Now, I tell you that to give you a little background. How is it that Mike went from seminary student to war hero? Well, I will tell you. Uh, he went um, and did some very extensive survival training uh, in the army before his deployment. And he tells a story uh, that I would like to share with you. Uh, on the way to survival training, Mike was scared out of his mind. Uh, he knew that people have actually perished. They've died during survival training. It's very rare, but it does happen. I knew a little bit about it because uh, my father uh, almost cut his thumb off when he was doing survival training, uh, preparing for Vietnam. So I know it's a dangerous and horrible experience. And on top of that, the only people that were going to this were a bunch of chaplains. And if you know anything about the military, the chaplains are the weakest, loserest, you know, most failure people in the military. They're like out of shape. They're like, they, they're just doing it for the paycheck. They're useless. Um, and, and so there's all these doughy guys freaking out because they're going to be treated like real soldiers for the first time in their life. So Mike's shaking in his boots, and he looks over at the chaplain next to him, and this guy is rock solid. Mike's like, everyone else is, you know, rubbing their hands. He's looking at this guy, and this guy's just ready to take a nap. So he looks down and he sees uh, a ranger patch on this guy's arm. And he starts to look and he sees a whole bunch of medals and ribbons. And he's like, most chaplains have one that says, I'm a chaplain. And that's about it. But this guy is heavily decorated. And he strikes up a conversation. He says, uh, have, you, uh, have you done this before? And the guy said, yeah, I sure have. Um... This is actually going to be, if, once we get deployed, it'll be my fifth tour. I've been to Iraq and Af- Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, there was a point in my life where um, I, I, I could no longer live. Uh, I, I believe in the mission, but I could no longer live with myself as a disciple of Christ um, to be killing. And so, um, but I, I still wanted to be there for the guys. And so I, I went back and I, and I went to seminary and now I'm going to be a chaplain so I can, you know, be with uh, these guys in the middle of, um, you know, these awful situations, because I get it. Now, as soon as Mike hears this, what does he do? He says this. Hey, so you've been here before. You get it. Do you have any advice? The guy's like, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, they're going to give you three MREs. Uh, meals ready to eat. They're garbage, but they're calories. You're going to keep them half and half. Uh, they only give you enough for three days, but you're going to need them for seven, so you parcel it out like this. And for the next two hours on the bus ride, this guy tells Mike how to succeed at survival training. Mike's, Mike wasn't sitting there being like, oh, I'm so scared of survival training. Could, could you please help me out? Uh, you get it. You've been here before. No, no, no. What Mike did was a much better choice. He shut up. He realized, here's somebody who gets it. Here's somebody who can tell me how to get through this. He's seen worse than I will ever see. He's been to places that I cannot possibly imagine. I bet he knows how to do this right. When we're praying... Jesus has been there. He gets it. But guess what? That means he knows much better than we do how to survive abandonment, 
And so it's on us to listen, to see how he survives abandonment. It's on us to listen for his advice, his experience. And that might be mediated a lot of ways. It might come through other people. It might come through scriptures. It can come from a lot of different places. It might come in in the quietness of prayer. It can come in worship. It can come in a lot of different places. But the key here is, shut up. He knows how to do it. And aren't we blessed to be on the bus with him instead of people who don't get it? Let's pray. Gracious God, we can confess because of the incarnation, because of the life and death of your son, and mostly because of his resurrection, that you get it. God, there are people here who are in the middle of abandonment, who are feeling lost and left behind, betrayed. People close to them have turned their backs. There are people who've had that happen in the past and they've never recovered and it's still a sore wound. There are people here who've yet to experience it, but will. Jesus, you get it. And not only do you get it, you did it so that we could be saved, so that we could have life, so that we could know that even in the midst of our deepest abandonment, that our destiny is sure, that there will be a resurrection, that we will rise. Because you've gone first, you've gone the deepest, you've gone the farthest. You can relate to us in our weakness, and you can draw us through your power and your teaching and your grace to our own resurrections. God, we who have been abandoned confess that you get it. And that you have a future of community, of intimacy, and life for all of us. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.